You've discovered TalkZone.com. I thank you. America has spoken from the bottom of my heart. The best in Internet talk radio. It's time for Healthy Talk Radio. By the powers vested in me, by the Federal Communications Commission. Coming to you live from the headquarters of the Global Health Network and across the world wide web. <gasps> Computers can do that? It's America's longest running radio program dedicated to your health and wellness. What's taking place here is an alternative approach. Now, the woman who's changing the face of health care each and every day. That's the fact, Jack! Here's Deborah Ray. Good day. Welcome to Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah Ray. Well, all of a sudden, the Swiss and Dutch healthcare systems are all the rage. Apparently, our Health and Human Services Secretary Levitt is in Europe taking a look at what Netherlands and Switzerland have to offer when it comes to their healthcare systems. Well, it has undergone a major mindset shift. Sleep is just not something you do to be able to get up the next morning. Sleep is as important for your overall well-being as is your diet. And we are joined today by a noted expert in the field of sleep and clinical sleep disorders and the author of Beauty Sleep. You'll want to learn more about why sleep can help you look younger, lose weight, yes, and feel great through better sleep. Dr. Michael Bruce joining us today right here on Healthy Talk Radio. Now the news and views about the news you won't hear anywhere else. The Healthy Talk Radio News Digest. Well, with the sobering news that we have all too many hospital-acquired infections, and many of those infections are antibiotic-resistant bacteria. In fact, uh, last year, the Center for Disease Control tells us that 19,000 people actually died from uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. What are we going to do? Well, apparently, Loyola, I hate to pronounce that name, Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago is not waiting as many hospitals are not waiting for a government mandate. They have announced plans to start testing all incoming patients for MRSA bacteria, isolating those patients who carry this dangerous bacteria, this search-and-destroy project, taking a look at both incoming patients and staff to see whether there are healthy people potentially harboring these methicillin-resistant Staph aureus bacteria that may set the stage for other immune-compromised patients to, uh, to be affected has been very successfully used in any number of innovative hospitals in this country. In fact, whole countries like the Netherlands have virtually stamped out hospital-acquired infections using this very model. Loyola is one of the first hospitals in Illinois to start this universal testing for the superbug. And now there is a new Illinois law requiring hospitals to test both intensive care patients and high-risk patients for MRSA. Loyola going one step further, testing all incoming patients. So if you're going to be a patient at a hospital sometime soon may want to take note of the fact that the innovative hospitals are testing patients to see who harbors these MRSA bacteria that can become so deadly in a hospital situation. 
wow, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) The Institute of Medicine has new recommendations for vitamins called dietary reference intakes. But the Food and Drug Administration's daily value recommendations for vitamins hasn't changed since 1968. And if you take a look at, for example, uh, one-a-day women's vitamins, they only offer about uh, 50% of the recommended intake of critical nutrients. For example, most women's one-a-day nutrients uh, provide about 400 international units of vitamin D, which we now know can greatly diminish the incidence of breast cancer and colon cancer among women and men. But, of course, the current research indicating that women would be much better served with 800 to 2,000 international units a day for vitamin D. So with Dr. Gladys Block out of UCL, uh, out of University of California, Berkeley, indicating that those people who take a variety of nutrients from vitamin A, C, D, E, uh, B-complex, uh, mixed uh, minerals, uh, uh, the beta carotenes, uh, or all of the, the natural mixed carotenoids as well as coenzyme Q10, much healthier perhaps uh, we should see a change when it comes to nutrients for women, indeed nutrients for all of us, that women who are breastfeeding should take additional zinc, and of course you have to balance zinc with copper to avoid anemia, that vegetarians and vegans should potentially supplement with both vitamin B12, iron, uh, and enough vitamin A, uh, that for pregnant women and athletes, both iron and vitamin B12 are important nutrients for most women. Vitamin K, particularly K2 for bone health and skin health, as well as reversing a, a plaque is very important. Magnesium is often an important mineral in terms of additional supplementation. So just keep in mind, the Food and Drug Administration has not changed their daily value recommendations for vitamins since 1968, when today our health has so many more challenges than ever before. Well, it was a study funded by Wheaties, presented at the annual meeting of the American College of Sports Medicine. They took a look at um, a cyclist who cycled. I mean, these guys were extreme athletes. Um, fasting for 12 hours before undergoing two hours of cycling exercise. Part of the group were either given then a carbohydrate-containing sports drink. Another group was given a bowl of whole grain cereal with skim milk. What they found is both the carbohydrate-containing sports drink and the whole grain cereal raised the body's blood sugar and their insulin levels. That's good. But the cereal was more effective at raising insulin and preventing a rise in the body's lactic acid levels. And the cereal was more effective at inducing the body to synthesize protein. That's important for the repair of muscles following exercise and increasing its ability to store glycogen. So a bowl of cereal just as good for exercise recovery 
as the expensive sports drinks. And, of course, when those sports drinks are certainly uh, being called into question these days because of the amount of sugar and the acidity of these drinks, all the more reason to consider some of the research about what it takes to recover from activity. Well, if you're a couple trying to conceive, we know that both male fertility and female fertility need to be addressed to optimize the chance of of conception. Now significant research uh, that there is an inverse relationship between soy food intake and male fertility, that we are finding that the isoflavones from soy actually improve male fertility, according to now a published study that perhaps um, the quality of your diet, nutritional status, has a huge role to play uh, in terms of fertility, knowing that the reproductive tissue is is fast dividing tissue, and that has a great deal of nutrient needs. Well, it is creating quite a controversy. That is the Nebraska family whose newborn was removed by state officials when they refused to submit the child to state-mandated newborn screening. And today's Wall Street Journal takes that one step further with the recent adoption of widespread screening for newborns, indicating that while it might be saving thousands of lives each year, that um, we recognize that this um, program to screen more newborns for more congenital diseases has some glitches in that system, that more screening means more potential for erroneous test results. Yes, it does happen. Those tests are not 100% uh, accurate by any means, causing needless angst for parents that doctors and hospital officials must inform the new parents about the screening process, but they're often ill-informed about the diseases uh, that are being screened for and how they are tested. So it goes back to this cultural tradition in medicine. We, we screen. We do a lot of screening. In fact, our whole uh, culture of cancer prevention is based upon mass screening when there's little science to back that up, and apparently that now translates to, quote, addressing the fallout of newborn screening. We're going to return to talk with Dr. Michael Bruce joining us today, a sleep expert. His book, Beauty Sleep, How You Can Look Younger and Lose Weight, Your Questions About Sleep, at 1-800-307-3002 on Healthy Talk Radio. Cutting-edge information on alternative medicines, nutrition, and your health. Healthy Talk Radio with Deborah Ray. A special guest joining us today, and while his bio might lead us to believe he's a very busy person, he understands, first and foremost, uh, all about sleep. In fact, that's the name of the book that brings him to us today, Beauty Sleep. Joining us today is a noted clinical psychologist who has much expertise in clinical sleep disorders. Uh, he uh, 
has a private practice, uh, the chairman of Clinical Advisory Board for Sleep Holdings that is making a difference, uh, focusing on sleep diagnostics and sleep therapy, and the author of Beauty Sleep, Dr. Michael Bruce, who joins us today. Dr. Bruce, hello and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me on your show. So, so tell us where, where the science has changed that all of a sudden we read, Dr. Bruce, that we have undergone a major paradigm shift. Sleep is as important uh, as very critical aspects of our lifestyle, even as important as diet. Well, it's kind of been interesting what's been going on for the past couple of years. I think, of course, my bias is going to say sleep has always been this important. <laughs> We're just finally starting to realize it. Um, but we're now really coming into our own in terms of learning what the research is telling us. You know, a great example is within the last four to five years, what we've seen in the realm of nutrition and sleep, which is kind of one of these strange topics you wouldn't necessarily think, oh gosh, you know, why would I ever study nutrition and sleep? Well, it turns out that a lot of people who have undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea, that's a situation where people actually stop breathing in their sleep, right. um, also have a high proclivity for diabetes. Now, we know that people with diabetes need to keep an eye on blood sugar. Sure. So what some researchers at um, Harvard and at um, the University of Chicago did was they decided, well, you know what, we're going to start looking at some of these people's dietary habits and sort of see what's going on with the people who haven't been diagnosed yet with this sleep disorder. Well, we know a couple of things. First of all, we know that obstructive sleep apnea causes something called sleep deprivation. That's a situation where, quite frankly, we either don't get enough minutes or we don't get the quality sleep that we're looking for. So they started looking at this and they found that folks with sleep deprivation did all kinds of strange things. Number one is looking at their hormone levels. We found that they didn't have enough ghrelin. Now, I had no idea what ghrelin was until I really started to get into it. Ghrelin is your what I call your go hormone. Uh-huh. It tells your body, eat. You also have less leptin. Leptin is your stop hormone telling you, hey, you're full. So you've got too much go and not enough stop going on. Well, that's a perfect situation for anyone who's trying to lose weight to not be able to. Sure. Next, we had another study that was probably what I consider to be one of the most fascinating studies of all. Well, what they looked at was they looked at food choice in people who were sleep deprived. Now you're thinking, well, why would anybody care about food choice? It turns out that when we're sleep deprived and tired, we're interested in the high carbohydrate, high fat foods. We're not interested in the healthy alternatives. So not only is our, our hormones saying go and not saying stop, but when they are saying go, they're saying go for the, you know, the donuts and the apple pies and the ice creams, you know, and the fried onion rings. So it turns out to be a pretty serious situation. Interesting. Interesting indeed. As is your background. I understand that you never intended. In fact, the, the program in which you had an interest was full. <laughs> it was only by chance yeah. that you decided to, to follow the realm of clinical sleep disorders, Dr. Bruce. Well, it's exactly. I was actually originally interested in sports psychology and eating disorders, of all things, um, specifically working with gymnasts um, and people like that. And I was accepted into a program at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and they had this sleep disorders realm. And I said, well, I, need to, I want to get into this program. I think I'll try this out and just sort of see what happens. And I've got to tell you something. As soon as I started practicing clinical sleep medicine, not only did I was able to change people's lives literally in 48 hours, but I changed my own because I found what an unbelievably rewarding um, field of psychology to go into. 
How intriguing. How intriguing. And, and, and as you point out in Beauty Sleep, you know, the story of the, of the two 32-year-olds, much in common, except when it came to, to their sleep. And when one had visited you, mm-hmm. I mean, just, just, I mean, uh, her friend could actually see the difference that just getting good sleep meant to her. Tell us more, Dr. Bruce. Well, it was pretty fascinating. Um, and of course, I have to keep those ladies' real names, you know, confidential. Um, but they were, they were comfortable enough with me to tell their story. But this one woman came to me and, you know, she knew she wasn't sleeping well and she knew that I focused in on insomnia and, and that was all well and good, but she just, you know, she really opened up to me one day in session and she said, Michael, she said, I don't look good. I don't feel good. I'm getting depressed. Um, you know, is this all possibly from my poor sleep? And I, I turned to her and I said, you know, there's a good likelihood that it, it really could be. And she said, well, you know, explain more of that to me. And I said, well, think about it. When you wake up in the morning and you haven't had a good night's sleep, what do you look like? You know, what do you look like Saturday morning or Sunday morning when you've been out on the town for a night? Probably not as good as you did when you before you went, went out on the town. I said, you know, tell me about your exercise habits. Tell me about your sleep habits. And we really started to get into a bunch of different things. Then what was so fascinating was we came up with a plan, and we said, hey, let's get together, and let's decide what we want to do. So we had her regulate her sleep schedule. We had her regulate her sleep schedule, regulate her exercise schedule, and then all of a sudden, then all of a sudden, we found, lo and behold, she started feeling better. Well, the funny thing was is that when she walked into my office the next day, she said, I told one of my friends about it, and she said, you look fantastic, and I told her why, and that was how it all came about. Now, we'd be remiss not to, to, to mention, and you talk about it in your book, uh, Beauty Sleep, Dr. Bruce, um, that you know, given our cultural conditioning, uh, we consume a lot of either over-the-counter or prescription medication for sleep. We think right. the answer is in a pill. Is that ever the case, or, or uh, you know, when is considering a medication? Because uh, my next question will be to educate us, you know, about mm-hmm. the potential risk of that, uh, that that should actually be considered. Well, there are times when sleeping pills are appropriate. You have to remember, is there's no such thing as one solution for everybody, because lots of people have lots of different sleep problems. Now, here's a here's an example that I oftentimes use to sort of exemplify my point is if you were diagnosed with cancer, okay, you're not going to fall asleep too well that night. And you're probably not going to fall asleep too well for many nights subsequent to that, not to mention the effects that chemotherapy can have on your sleep cycle and things like that. So those are the types of people where there's no question that they're probably going to need a sleeping pill, right? People who are medically frail, people who have, you know, other medical situations of things like that going on, are certainly going to need that. People during times of bereavement, people during times of high, high stress like divorce, things like that, those are going to be times where a sleeping pill may in fact be appropriate. The only way to really know is to be evaluated by a sleep professional. Mm-hmm. Now, there are lots of us around. Um, there's probably over 5,000 sleep professionals in the country. Um, there aren't as many clinical psychologists who are sleep specialists, um, but there are plenty of people who are. And so one of the things that I like to talk about with people is finding a good sleep specialist that will allow you to un- allow, allow you to be evaluated, to be understood, to determine whether or not you actually need a sleeping pill. Now, the other area that we can talk about are over-the-counter sleep aids. 
Now, the big problem with over-the-counter sleep aids, quite honestly, is there's no controls on them. I've had patients, um, I answer questions on a website called WebMD, mm-hmm. and I have patients who at least once a month say, is it okay to take a box of Benadryl a night? Oh, my goodness. That's really? 18 10-milligram tablets. Wow. So when one stops working, they take two. When right. two stop working, they take four. When four stop working, they take eight. And I know it sounds like common sense to say, yeah, you think that's a bad idea? Of course it is. But there are people out there who are so desperate for sleep. So that's one of the things that I don't like. The other thing, strangely enough, is the research is just not behind a lot of the over-the-counter sleep aids, specifically the ones with Benadryl. What we find is you don't fall asleep any faster on Benadryl than you do on sugar pill. Amazing, amazing. I also want to talk about um, the fact that, that many of those are only intended for short-term use. We'll do that when we return. He's a noted expert in clinical sleep disorders. Dr. Michael Bruce joining us today. For those of you who asked me to spell B-R-E-U-S, his website, yourbeautysleep.com, his book, Beauty Sleep. Our line's open on Healthy Talk Radio. The information presented on Healthy Talk Radio is all well-documented and presented by credentialed guests. It may not represent the views of this network, this radio station, or its sponsors, but hey, how much do they know about medicine anyway? Dr. Michael Bruce joining us today, B-R-E-U-S. He's a noted expert in the field of sleep, a regular contributor to the WebMD community where you can ask him questions about sleep. He's been interviewed uh, virtually on all the the major medias. Uh, His website, yourbeautysleep.com, and the book that brings him to uh, to us today, Beauty Sleep. We're, We're talking about all of the physical, mental, uh, medical reasons uh, to think about uh, the quality of your sleep. And where, where do you start with people? Is, is it as simple as starting with uh, their, their bedroom as you do in beauty sleep, Dr. Bruce? The truth is there's a couple of places that people generally start. The very first thing I try to teach people to do, which is actually um, day one in my 28-day program, is I tell people, do you have any idea what time you should be going to bed? Because, you know, everybody knows what time they're waking up. Because usually their alarm is set or their children walk through the door or they have to go to work or or something along those lines. But most people have absolutely no idea what time they should be getting into bed in order to get enough time in bed to get good quality sleep. So what I ask people to do is take their what I call socially determined wake-up time. And then I ask them to count backwards five 90-minute periods. And let me tell you why I chose those numbers. Okay. 90 minutes is about the average time of a sleep cycle, and you should have, on average, about five of these sleep cycles a night. Five 90-minute periods turns out to be roughly seven and a half hours. So if you wake up at 7.30, I want you in bed by about 11.45, so hopefully you'll be asleep by midnight. If you're waking up at 6.30, I want you in bed at 10.45. So hopefully you'll be asleep by 11 o'clock. Usually I have people start there and do this for about a week. Once they determine when they wake up in the morning how they feel, if they start to feel well and refreshed and ready to meet the day, right. then we're on to something. Then we're starting to get close. If they, after a week of doing this, say, gosh, Michael, I still don't feel so hot, well, then they may need eight hours or eight and a half hours. The, the big myth that's out there is that everybody out there needs eight hours of sleep. It's simply not true. 
I, for example, have always been a six and a half hour guy. Ever since high school, I've always woken up after six and a half hours. It's just what my body needs. Now, that's changed over the course of my life at times where maybe I've had more stress and haven't gotten good quality sleep. Um, but over time, um, I've stayed reasonably stable. Now, when I start to get into my 50s, 60s, and 70s, will that change? It might, depending upon my health and my concerns in that, that respect. But generally speaking, I'm always going to be a six-and-a-half to seven-hour guy. So I don't want anybody out there to think, gosh, if I'm not getting eight hours, it's going to you know, trim you know, ten years off the back end of my life, because it's simply not true. The second thing that I like to do with people is exactly what you said, is go into their bedroom and take a look around and see, gosh, what could be going on in here that could possibly affect your sleep? The thing I like to do most is to really think of a bedroom in terms of five different senses, or what I call the five-sense sleep environment. So if you want, I can go through the different senses. Please, please. Okay. So the first one I talk to people about is sight. Now, believe it or not, the science would tell us that light is the number one thing that will affect our ability to not only fall asleep, but maintain good quality sleep. The reason being is light comes in through the optic nerve, bounces around in a couple of parts of your brain, and ends up in an area called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Now, don't try to spell that, and you don't really even need to know that, but what you need to know is that area is your biological clock. This is the thing that tells you when to wake up in the morning, when to go to bed at night, even tells your brain when it should produce melatonin and other different hormones. So as soon as light affects that area, it says it's daytime. So the very first thing I ask people to do is look around the room, see what kind of light you've got going on in there. A perfect example is I have people replace the bulbs in their bedside tables from 120 watts down to 40 watts. Again, we're here to create an environment that's inviting for sleep. Um, I may have people use eye shades. Um, I may even, if you like to read but your bed partner goes to bed earlier than you, I may even prescribe, believe it or not, a special book light that can be used to keep your bed partner from waking up in the middle of the evening. Mm-hmm. Next, I'm going to move on to sound. Right. Sound is also a very big factor that can disturb people's sleep. A great example is a baby crying. Now, interestingly enough, um, when they take a look at this from a scientific perspective, what they found was women hear babies cry and men snore, and men don't hear either one of those. Men have a tendency to hear things like breaking glass or somebody coming into the house that, or a, a noise that just doesn't make sense to them. So it's even gender-specific, the things that could potentially disturb your sleep. So, of course, one of the things I talk about with my patients are sound machines, earplugs, things like that. But there's a trick or a tip I can give people here if you're looking at Mm earplugs, and that's that you want to get earplugs that are noise level rated at 32 or below. The reason you want to do this is you still need to be able to hear the smoke alarm or the baby cry. You just want to have it a little muffled, if at all possible. Next, we go on to smell. Now, a lot of people say, well, Michael, what, what could you possibly be telling me about smell in my bedroom? Well, the data is actually quite consistent that aromatherapy is something that has been shown to work. Now, what do I mean by aromatherapy? Well, first of all, people need to know that you don't just sniff something and pass out, okay, unless it's like ether or something like that. Right. What people need to understand is aromatherapy can cause a relaxation response in your musculature, allowing your muscles to slowly start to slow down and relax. Um, that helps with the onset of sleep. And so there are a lot of times where aromatherapy can be very, very potent. Two things to remember about aromatherapy. Number one, candles and sleep do not mix. Okay? Fire and sleep is bad. 
Number two, there are only certain smells that actually have been shown to cause a relaxation effect. Of course, lavender happens to be one of the more popular ones. We see that all over the place. Sure. Um, as a matter of fact, I work with um, Bath and Body Works, and they have a wonderful line of aromatherapy um, that uses lavender, which is one of the scents. Chamomile, which is another one. Something called Yin Lang, Y-I-N. L-A-N-G is the third one. Uh And then the fourth one is, believe it or not, vanilla. So what you look for in aromatherapy are those scents that are either in some type of a diffuser or or a pillow mist or an oil or something along those lines that can help you with that. The fourth area we like to talk about is touch. Now, touch turns out to be a big one because touch includes pillows, mattresses, sheets, you name it. So let me dispel a couple of myths that are around about touch. Number one, as far as sheets are concerned, you can't physically get more than 500 threads in a square inch. So when people are trying to sell you 300, 400 you know, thread count sheets, that's probably real. But if somebody's trying to sell you 600, 800, 1,000 thread count sheets, all that is are sheets that are woven together. Two 400s woven together equals an 800 in their book. So there's a lot of marketing going on, and let me tell you, those sheet prices can be pretty expensive. Pillows, a whole different story. Now, what's interesting about pillows is most people, they go to the department store, they grab a pillow off the pillow wall, as I call it, they push it against the side of their head, and they say, hmm, feels good, I think I'll take it. You can take a $3,000 mattress, and if you buy a $15 pillow, you just turned your $3,000 mattress into a $15 mattress. Pillows turn out to be critical because we have to have proper spinal neck alignment to avoid tension on our musculature all night long. So pillows turn out to be a really important factor. Um, what I oftentimes tell people to do is pick pillows based on the position that you sleep in. Okay. So, for example, if you're a side sleeper, mm-hmm. then you probably want a thicker or more firm, dense pillow than if you're a back sleeper or a stomach sleeper where you're going to want a very thin pillow. Now, let me tell you another thing that people tell me all the time. They say, Michael, well, I've had my pillow for about a year now, and I finally got it broken into exactly the way I like it. If you've broken your pillow to that point, there's nothing that's going to stop it from continuing to break even further. So don't be fooled. If your pillow isn't exactly the way you want it within about a week, you got yourself the wrong pillow. Also, people should know that they should be changing their pillows every 12 to 18 months. Our bodies emit a tremendous amount of sweat and oil. There's dust mites, all of these different things that can actually be um, causing uh, allergies and things like that. So people have to be very careful in terms of making sure that they change their pillow on a pretty regular basis. There's actually a good website that has a quiz that people can take. It's called sleepbetter.org, and there's something called the Z-score. And people can actually take one of these Z-scores, and it can help them determine what type of pillow is best for them. Mattresses turn out to be a very complicated topic. Now, people ask me all the time, hey, Mike, you know, what's the best mattress for me? There is no one individual mattress that's great for everyone. And people just have to understand that. Mattresses are best when they're chosen directly for the needs of the individual. So as an example, if you need one firmness but your bed partner needs another firmness, then you're going to want to consider a mattress that's got some type of, excuse me, some type of firmness differences, okay? Okay, um, so in other words, adjustment. Exactly, some right. type of adjustability. Okay. 
Um, and what you find is, for example, Select Comfort is one of the mattresses where you can have firmness adjustability on one side right. and a different firmness and adjustability on another side. Mm -hmm. Tempur-Pedic does the same thing. Um, it just You don't have control over changing the firmness level. It changes the firmness level for you. There are also other more conventional mattresses that will do the same thing. So when you walk into the mattress retail store, and believe me, that can be a difficult experience for some people, you need to walk in with a few ideas in mind. Number one, do my bed partner and I need roughly the same firmness? You may, you may not. Number two, am I experiencing any low back pain, high back pain, anything that would make me think that I may need some type of a specialized mattress? Right. Number three, am I comfortable sleeping on a normal coiled sleep surface or does my bed partner move around a lot, which would cause a lot of movement in the mattress? Some of the newer mattresses now have individually pocketed coils so you don't feel somebody's movement when they're sitting next to you. If you can answer some of those questions and walk up to the salesperson and say, these are the things that I know, they should be able to lead you to the right mattress for you. The last area that I talk about in the bedroom is taste. Now, you're probably saying, okay, Michael, I've heard about all the other ones, but what on earth would taste have to do with sleep, especially in my bedroom? Well, the first thing I like to tell people is pizza and beer and sleep don't mix. You know, if you're having a meal right before bed, right. that's going to affect your ability to fall asleep. As an example, the body really wasn't designed to digest food lying down. It was really meant to digest food either standing up or sitting up. So having a meal anything closer than about two and a half to three hours before you're going to bed mm -hmm. is simply going to have an effect on your sleep. You also have to think about what it is that you're eating. So for, in the example I used before about pizza and beer, you've got a lot of different factors. Number one, beer's got alcohol in it. Now, we all know that alcohol can make us sleepy, but what many people don't know is that alcohol can actually keep you out of the deeper stages of sleep. So you fall asleep fast, but you don't get good quality sleep. Number two, the carbonation in alcohol can cause something called gastroesophageal reflux disease, where you have heartburn and you're burping throughout the evening. This can also have a major effect on your sleep. For pizza, I have nothing against pizza, but the spiciness of the tomato sauce can definitely give some people heartburn, again, affecting their ability to fall asleep at night. So when you walk into your bedroom, while you used to just think, well, it's just my bedroom, I'm going to go plop down and relax, there's a lot of factors that can affect your sleep. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, you know, talking about the, the, the length of sleep, is there a U-shaped curve here? Can you ever uh, uh, actually detrimentally sleep too much, Dr. Bruce? Well, it's an interesting question to ask. There have now been three research studies that show if you sleep more than 10 hours or less than 5 hours, you have at least a two times greater mortality rate. Wow. Wow. So there is a window. It's somewhere between 5 and 10 hours. Because the way we figure it is like this. People who are sleeping less than 5 hours have usually got severe sleep deprivation, which is causing increased blood pressure, increased heart rate, lowered immune system. And people who are sleeping greater than 10 hours are probably suffering from a sleep disorder like narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia. Hmm. Hmm. Now, in, in, in terms of... of you know, activities, you know, we, we talked about, you know, what you eat before you go to sleep. What about activities? So people who may push an exercise program into later in the evening, is there a potential detrimental to, you know, doing some cardio, say, at 9.30, Dr. Bruce? Well, here's what's interesting about that is, 
what we have found is that exercise right before bed actually can be helpful for some people. And here's why. If you're a person who exercises and you get a nice feeling of relaxation after your exercise, right. well, then you might be one of those folks that can exercise before bed. Now, when I say before bed, I'm talking about probably 60 to 90 minutes before lights out, okay, for about a half an hour or so. So you would have stopped exercising approximately one hour before bed. Some of the research would say, you know what, there's so much autonomic arousal, your muscles are up and tense and moving, that it's going to make prevent you from sleeping. If you're one of those people who, when you exercise, you get energy and you're ready to go and meet the day, well, then exercising in the morning is probably going to be better for you. Hold that thought. We'll pick it up when we return. He's Dr. Michael Bruce, who joins us today, B-R-E-U-S, a well-known expert in the field of sleep. He has a website, yourbeautysleep.com, and a new book out that brings him to us today, now in, in a paperback fashion, Beauty Sleep. Our line's open for uh, Dr. Michael Bruce. Your questions about sleep at 800-307-3002. Warning. The Surgeon General has determined that missing any portion of this show could be hazardous to your health. Once again, the host who's a medical consumer just like you, Deborah Ray. He's an expert in the field of clinical sleep disorders, the chairman of Clinical Advisory Board for Sleep Holdings, his website, yourbeautysleep.com, and his book now in paperback, Beauty Sleep, how much we are now learning in terms of how we look, that lack of sleep can actually age us, that our weight, losing weight, (laughs) is connected to um, the amount, the quality of our sleep, feeling great through better sleep. Dr. Michael Bruce joining us today. And as you educate us in your book, Beauty Sleep, Dr. Bruce, that the number one um, off-repeated refrain among insomniacs is, I can't turn my mind off. You know, you've addressed many of the issues of sleep going through those five senses in the bedroom, but what about those people who, you know, two, three, four o'clock in the morning, their mind is churning and they're wide awake? Well, that is the number one complaint that I get, and it's very, very common. Um, one of the things I talk with people about is, you know, the truth of the matter is, is if you've been running around busy all day, you haven't had any time to think. You know, most people tell me, gosh, Michael, I get in bed and I turn off the lights, And it's the first time I've ever actually had a chance to sit down and think for a minute. Well, what I tell them is, is, you know what, I'd rather you reserve some time for thinking for before bed or after you wake up. But lying in bed and thinking, all that does is it stirs up all kinds of emotion and it can oftentimes prevent you from actually falling asleep. Easy, simple trick that I tell people about, and this is going to sound hard, but it actually really works is if you can count backwards from 300 by threes. Okay. Now, that's not an easy task to do. (laughs) It takes a significant amount of mathematical calculation, but you can't think of anything else, and it's so doggone boring, people fall right to sleep. I've never made it past 150 myself. (laughs) Well, I'm sure you have many testimonials of people who say, literally, it changed my life, Dr. Bruce. Yeah, it's been pretty amazing. I was actually working with um, one fellow who um, worked for the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and he, he came in to see me and he said, you know, I've been put to a desk job. I'm, I'm not happy. I'm not happy in my marriage. I'm not happy in my work. I'm just I'm miserable. And I had, you know, talked with him for a few minutes, and we discovered that he had several signs and symptoms of, 
undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea. And sure enough, we sent him in for a sleep study, and he came back, and he was stopping and breathing in his sleep over 200 times a night. Wow. And he had no idea. Yeah. And that's actually quite common. Most people have no idea what's going on in their sleep because, of course, they're asleep. Sure. Usually they rely on a bed partner to tell them what may be happening. So we go and we get him better. We treat him with something called a CPAP machine, which right. stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. Now, many of your listeners may be familiar with this, but for those who are not, sleep apnea is a situation where somebody snores, they stop breathing at night. They may wake up with headaches or grouchy We're going to have to leave it there invite you uh, to join us again. Dr. Michael Bruce, our pleasure. His book, Beauty Sleep, I'm Deborah Ray, reminding you to live long, stay healthy.